and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 23, The First Seljuk Sultan. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So last time, we discussed the beginning of the Seljuks, the flight of a band of Ohuz tribes under the leadership of Seljuk from the chaos of the collapsing Ohuz Yabgu state into the lands of Transoxiana and Khorasan. We ended with the Battle of Dandan Khan and the total defeat of the Ghaznavids. So in 1040, the Seljuks now stand as the unrivaled lords of Khorasan, under the leadership of the triumvirate of Musa Yabgu and his nephews, the brothers Tukhrul and Shahri. And today, we're going to discuss how that triumvirate started to fall apart as Tukhrul began to emerge as the paramount leader of the Seljuks. As we will see in this and in the coming episodes, Tukhrul will accomplish this through becoming a ruler in the Islamic mold by becoming more than a mere steppe warlord. Indeed, by becoming the first Seljuk Sultan. Perhaps most importantly, we're going to discuss how the Turks initially came to the land that they would come to dominate and that will form the setting for so much of this podcast in the future, Anatolia. And these three strands are actually all connected. By conquering to the West and by determinedly working to rule in the Islamic tradition, Tukhro would expand his power both externally and internally over his rivals. And in the act of becoming a proper Islamic ruler, Tukhro will force many of the wild Ohuz tribes to the fringes of the empire and into Anatolia. Now, if you'll recall from last episode, the Seljuks were traditional steppe nomads. When they conquered territories, they were really mostly interested in gaining pasturage and in certain tax farming rights. They weren't really setting out to build a state. But after their initial conquest in 1035, that began to change, at least for Tukhrul. Indeed, there are some indications that Tukhrul had already begun to think in grander terms by the late 1030s. As I briefly mentioned last time, when Tukhrul first conquered Nishapur in 1037 or 1038, he ordered that coins be minted bearing his name and the name of the caliph. He also ordered that the khutbah, the Friday sermon, be read in his name in the mosque of Nishapur again a traditional mark of sovereignty in the Muslim world. These are not things that steppe nomads really do, or really care about, and it really shows that Tukhro was beginning to see himself as an Islamic ruler, as an emir, an inheritor of the political tradition that had been created in the Islamic world after the anarchy at Samarra, in addition to being a steppe ruler, an inheritor of the political tradition of the steppe that stretched back as far as anyone could remember. And after the Battle of Dandan Khan, this change in Tukhrul's thinking really accelerated. As Ghaznavid power melted away, Tukhrul saw that the Seljuks could rise in their place to become actual rulers in the rich lands of Islam. But only if they could work within the Islamic political tradition. And this would be the route through which Tukhrul would both cement Seljuk power 
but also cement his own power within the emerging Seljuk Empire. That is, cement his power over his rivals, his brother, and his uncle. Now remember that the Battle of Dandan Khan had actually been won by Tughrul's brother Chahri. The true scale of the victory had at first been hard to even grapple with. Reportedly, Chahri's men did not dismount for three days and would not be parted from their horses except when they needed to eat and drink and so on, out of fear of the return of Masud's army. Eventually, though, it dawned on everyone what Chahri and his men had actually done. The Ghaznavids were finished, at least in Khorasan and Balkh. In the immediate aftermath, Musa Yabgu, Tughrul, and Shahri were all immediately focused on cementing Seljuk power throughout the region. Musa Yabgu moved south and quickly conquered Herat, the great city of western Afghanistan. Shahri and his men immediately raced east to conquer Balkh, the lands of Afghanistan that were the original homeland of the Ghaznavids. In late 1040, Chahri besieged the city of Balkh itself. The city was held by Masud's chamberlain, a Turkish slave general named Altun Tak. Altun Tak sent messages off to Ghazna, where Masud was preparing for his flight to India. Nevertheless, Masud decided to make an attempt to hold Balkh, even if Khorasan was lost, so he sent out two armies, one to Balkh and one to Herat. The army sent to Herat managed to defeat Musa Yabgu's forces and drove Musa Yabgu from the city. The army sent to Balkh was at first successful and defeated Chahri's men in a small skirmish near Kandahar. But as the army advanced towards Balkh itself, Chahri was able to regroup his forces and destroy the vanguard of the Ghaznavid army, forcing the whole army to rout. Upon hearing the news, Altan Tak surrendered and submitted to Chahri. Masud then fled to India where, as we discussed last time, he was eventually deposed and executed. Chahri quickly captured Ghazna itself, the home of the Ghaznavid Ghulam state, which was now confined to India. After this second great victory by Chahri, the Ghaznavid forces in Herat apparently retreated to India, and Musa Yabgu was again able to retake Herat. So by late 1040, all of Balkh was now also out of Ghaznavid hands. Now, with the Ghaznavids gone, the ruling triumvirate of Musa Yabgu, Chahri, and Tughrul divided up the spoils. Chahri, who had ridden east and had been the man to deliver both great victories, got the lion's share, the eastern lands, basically all of Balkh and Khorasan. Tughrul was given Nishapur and the far lesser western realms, the original cities along the Kepeta mountain range on the fringes of the Karakum Desert while Musa Yabgu was packed off to Herat to rule. Indeed, it seems that by this point, Musa Yabgu was essentially sidelined, and the two brothers became the top rulers. Now, because Tukhrul is going to end up edging out his brother and become the real paramount ruler, the later Islamic sources focus entirely on him. After all, he was the man who really founded the empire, and in any event, he was the ruler in the western realms where most of the authors lived. They really do not give enough attention to Chahri or to Musa Yabgu, which makes it basically impossible to really know the details of how Tughrul actually won. The Islamic histories make it seem inevitable, but it really wasn't. Indeed, at this point, it sort of looks like Chahri, not Tughrul, is going to be the one who ends up on top. He had been the guy to win both of the major battles against the Ghaznavids. He had been the one who had driven them from Khorasan and even from Balkh, 
he had been the one who had entered Ghazna itself. And indeed, there are some indications that he did try to take the top spot. He seems to have been using the title Malik ul Muluk, an Arabic rendering of the ancient Persian title of Shah and Shah, the King of Kings. Evidence on coins shows that Chahri was using the bow and arrow motif, a traditional Turkish symbol of sovereignty. Perhaps more concretely, after his great victories, as the new Seljuk domains were divided up, Chahri would end up taking the eastern portion. As we have discussed many times before, the Turkish political tradition saw the eastern-slash-left-wing part of the confederation as the senior branch, while the west was the junior branch. I mean, think all the way back to the very first episodes on the Gökturk Khanate, where this same division occurred. And the eastern lands claimed by Chahri as his were really the largest and wealthiest part of this nascent state, Khorasan and Balkh. Sitting there in 1040, if you were a betting man, you'd probably put your money on Chahri to win the whole thing. But it just wasn't to be. Chahri was destined to rule the eastern lands, defending against repeated Ghaznavid attempts to retake them from India, while Musa Yabgu would wither away as an irrelevance, presumably ruling only Herat until sometime around 1054 or 1055, which we only presume because that's the date of the last coin of his that has been found. And it would be Tuchrul, the younger brother of Chari, who would end up on top and conquer basically the whole Muslim world. So how did that happen? There are a lot of reasons, but I think the main one is that Tuchrul was determined to work within the existing Islamic political tradition, to fashion himself into an acceptable Islamic ruler. And as we will come to see, Tuchrul convinced and negotiated the Seljuks into power more than he conquered his way into power. Now this sort of flies in the face of the traditional model of a steppe nomad leader taking over a sedentary civilization. Normally, we see the mounted Khan, the barbarian lord of the grasslands, breaking his foes with the invincible power of steppe military might, the conqueror on horseback. But Tuchrul really broke the mold here. Indeed, he was more of a diplomat on horseback than anything else. To me, this makes Tuchrul one of the most fascinating guys in Turkish history. Because you have to remember that Tuchrul was not born in the Muslim world that he came to rule. He was born on the steppes. He was in his early 40s when he rode into Khorasan, and until that point he had lived his whole life on the steppe, living in the world of herds and felt tense, always on the move. He had been raised by his grandfather Seljuk as a nomad, and in all likelihood, both his grandfather and his father had in fact been nominally converts to Judaism before converting to Islam. And like most Turks, Tuchrul's knowledge of Islam, at least at first, was probably very thin. He spoke no Arabic or Persian, and he was illiterate. When he first rode into the great cities of the Muslim world, they would have been incredibly alien to him. Think about maybe a modern example. Imagine a 42-year-old Central Asian immigrant who has never set foot in a town of more than a couple thousand people being dropped down in the middle of New York City. Think about the culture shock. Think about how hard it would be for that person to really grasp the social and political structures of the world he had come to. How hard it would be for him to wheel and deal and negotiate with the established powers of the world he found himself in. I mean, if there's anyone who should have been a traditional steppe warlord, it's Tuchrul, 
but he just wasn't. He adapted to the Muslim world he found himself in with incredible speed and skill and indeed shrewdness. To have done what he's about to do, he must have not just been an incredibly intelligent man, but a very curious, open-minded, and flexible person. Ibn al-Athir says that he was intelligent, mild-tempered, and extremely tolerant, which seems fitting, but we should never forget that he was still a nomad leader, and as such, more than capable of inflicting cruel and horrific violence when required. Tuchrul began his march to ultimate power by entering Nishapur in 1040 shortly after the Battle of Dandan Khan, while his brother Chari, the man who had actually won the battle, was riding east to finish off Ghaznavid rule in Balkh. Reportedly, Tuchrul entered the governor's palace in the city and marched into the main audience room, where the divan, the council of state, would sit. He assembled the divan of the prior regime, the elites of the city and the province, and installed himself on the throne. He then turned to the Qadi, the judge of Islamic law, and asked for guidance, saying, We are new men and strangers, and we do not know the Persians' customs. This would sort of set the tone for his coming conquests. And Tukhrul and the Seljuks were indeed unfamiliar with Persian customs and the customs of the Islamic world as a whole. Not only did they not speak the language, but they were just very ill at ease in the sophisticated world they now found themselves in. Ibn al-Athir shares several hilarious anecdotes about their initial days in Nishapur. It is related of him, Tukhrul, that he saw an almond cake, which he ate, and said, This is excellent tutmak, but there is no garlic in it. The Ohus also saw camphor and thought that it was salt. They said, This is bitter salt. Many things of this sort are said about them. In other words, they were strangers in a strange land, men who had never seen things like almond cakes or camphor, and who were seen as crude barbarians by the sophisticated people of Nishapur. But Tuchrul did have a model to work with. He wasn't inventing a mode of government out of whole cloth. Of course, the tradition of Turkish military rule paired with the Perso-Islamic civil rule was long-standing, as we have discussed. Turkish slave soldiers ruling in conjunction with Persian and Arab viziers had been happening ever since the anarchy at Samarra. But more important for Tuchrul and the Seljuks was the example of the Karakhanids, the House of Afrasiab. The Karakhanids were not slave soldiers. They were rulers in the steppe tradition. They were Khans, but Khans who had married steppe power to a Chinese and Uyghur-style administrative state, which was then greatly influenced by the Perso-Islamic state structures that the Karakhanids encountered when they conquered the lands of the Samanid Emirate. And Tukhrul was deeply and intimately familiar with the Karakhanid Khanate. And in time, he and his successors will not just follow in the footsteps of the Karakhanids, but build off of the model they provided. Now the first thing that Tuchrul did was restore general order. The collapse of Ghaznavid authority had resulted in a collapse of general security. In the cities of the province, even in Nishapur itself, bands of urban mobs roamed the streets, terrorizing the population. Meanwhile, rivalries between the cities and the province threatened to lead to a low-grade civil war. The urban gangs of Tus and Abiwart were teaming up to try to sack Nishapur itself. Tuchrul immediately put a stop to this. Poorly organized urban gangs and militia were of course no match for the Seljuk mounted warriors, and the Ohus were quickly able to put them down and restore order. 
This immediately gave Tuchel a popularity boost with the elites of the province. In general, there's nothing that rich people fear more than the riffraff bounding around in armed bands. You never really know how that's going to turn out. But Tuchel also acted to restrain his own men. There is a perhaps invented anecdote that when he conquered Nishapur for the first time in 1037, he restrained his men from sacking and looting the town, as was tradition for steppe nomads. I mean, that's like at least half the reason that steppe nomads go to war. Tukrul said that since it was Ramazan, they would have to wait for the holy month to be over. But during the holy month itself, Tukrul received a letter from the caliph in Baghdad congratulating him and asking him to respect the lives and property of the Muslims. Likely realizing how important the caliph's approval actually was, how it could be used to get the local officials, bureaucrats, and nobles who he needed onto his side, Tukrul then forbade any looting even after Ramazan ended. And then he extended the prohibition to all Seljuk troops throughout the nascent empire. Reportedly, Chahri was incredulous about this and was only restrained from leading his own Turkmen to plunder Nishapur in the west by Tukhro rather dramatically threatening to kill himself. Now I'm not sure that we can trust the veracity of that story, because it really does seem like pro-Seljuk and even pro-Tukhro propaganda, but it is demonstrative of how important the restoration of order was to Tukhrul as a political project. See, the pro-Seljuk and the pro-Tukhrul sources of course make a huge deal about this, how Seljuk rule meant an end to anarchy and the restoration of order. Indeed, that's going to be a coming theme, because Tukhrul is in essence going to start promoting himself as the restorer of order, and not just as the guy who can stop the local anarchy and local disorder, but eventually, as the man to end the general disorder within the lands of Islam that has prevailed since the anarchy at Samarra. In essence, as the man to finally end the anarchy at Samarra. Deeply connected to this was Tukhrul's determination to act as a Muslim ruler, not as a nomad chief, and as an orthodox Sunni ruler at that. Order and Sunni orthodoxy would always be presented by Tukhrul and the pro-Seljuk sources as essentially the same thing, and Tukhrul and the Seljuks will present themselves as restorers of both. We can see the importance of this religious gloss in restraining his troops from looting during Ramazan, though to be clear, even if that story is true, I'm sure that the restriction was honored more in the breach than in the observance. And we know for sure that Tukhrul did allow his troops to engage in looting in Nishapur in 1040. Tukhro also minted coins both in his name, as Emir, and in the caliph's name upon taking Nishapur. He ordered the khutbah, the Friday sermon, to be read in both his name and in the name of the caliph in all of the mosques. He largely left in place the existing Persian bureaucracy and civil service, recognizing that he would need them to run the state, and he made sure to treat these men with all due courtesy and respect. Think about his words to the caddy asking for guidance. But at the same time, Tukhrul knew that steppe nomad troops were the source of his power. Without his Turkmen steppe riders, he was nothing. He needed them. And indeed, after the Battle of Dandan Khan, the number of Turkmen followers following the Seljuks seems to have rapidly expanded. Vast hordes moved south, joining up with this new, powerful dynasty, which of course increased the demand for pasturage and plunder. So at the same time that he presented himself as an Islamic ruler to the peoples of the cities, to the civilized world, he made sure to remain a step chieftain to his nomadic followers, 
See, for example, his allowing them to loot Nishapur the second time around. He made sure that they were given the pasturage that they required, even when this might annoy local farmers or nobles, and that they received tribute and the rewards of victory. In essence, Tuchrol was trying to do something similar to what Emperor Gaozu and Emperor Taizong did during the early years of the Tang Dynasty hundreds of years earlier, what we discussed all the way back in Episode 6. To function on both the steppe and in the palace, to rule in both worlds, in both political systems, and thereby use the power of the steppe to conquer the sedentary world. Gaozu and Taizong, of course, did this in the Chinese political system, but Tuchrol would accomplish it in the Islamic political system. I said then that Gaozu and Taizong were in essence Khan emperors. Khans in the eyes of their Turkish followers, emperors in the eyes of their Chinese followers. Well, Tuchrol is in essence going to become a Khan sultan. A sultan in the Islamic political tradition, and a Khan in the Turkish political tradition. Even if he would never claim the title Khan due to the obscure lineage of the Seljuks when compared to the venerable lineage of the Karakhanids. But as we will come to see, this will of course end up creating a tension within the Seljuk state, because the role of Khan and the role of Sultan are actually quite different. And eventually, as the Seljuk court becomes more and more cooked, as the Chinese would say, the same thing will happen to them as happens to every other cooked barbarian state. The royal court will come into conflict with the nomads they ultimately derive their power from. But we'll get to that eventually. So by 1041, Tuchrol was firmly in control of Nishapur and western Khorasan. Secure in his northeastern corner of the Iranian plateau, he started looking west to see how he could extend his power and influence. He did this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, with Musa Yabgu and Chari to his east, west was sort of the only way he could go. And he had to advance. The steppe nomads he depended upon demanded it. They needed pasturage, plunder, and loot. That's why they fought. They would not tolerate sitting around in Khorasan, acting as essentially a police force, keeping urban gangs down. And as Tuchrol gazed across his western frontiers, he realized that there was basically no one to stop him. And this is the other thing that would lead him to emerge as the top Seljuk leader. His western conquests would come to dwarf the size of the lands of the east, because it turns out that all of Iran and beyond was his for the taking. To understand why there really wasn't a force in Iran that could stop the Seljuks, we need to back up a little. As the Tahirid Emirate collapsed in the early 10th century, several successor emirates emerged in the east. We already discussed in some detail the Samanids and the Safarids, who emerged in Transoxiana and Balkh. Well, western Iran came to be dominated by an emirate called the Buyid Emirate. The Buyids were an Iranian family that originally hailed from the mountains of northern Iran along the Caspian Sea. The founder of the dynasty was a common soldier in the service of a local warlord in the region. In essence, an Abbasid commander who struck out on his own as the state authority more or less collapsed. As the Tahirids weakened, the Buyids swept down from the north and eventually conquered virtually all of central Iran. Eventually, even Baghdad fell into their hands. But crucially for our story, the Buyids were Shia, not Sunni. Now it is important to remember that though Iran is today basically entirely Shia, and Iraq is majority Shia, that was not true at this time. Shiaism was a minority sect, and most people, common and noble alike, were Sunni. 
So upon capturing Baghdad and the Sunni Abbasid Caliph, the Buyids had to figure out what to do. They couldn't kill the Caliph or depose him, really. I mean, that would just cause absolute pandemonium, and likely an all-out invasion by the other emirs, who actually did depend on the legitimation provided by the Caliph. And so they basically severed the Caliph's spiritual power from any remaining political power he may have had. The Caliph, in essence, became the prisoner of the Shia emirs. A bit of a reversal from how the Shia imams were once prisoners in Samarra. Though critically, the institution of the Turkish slave army was not done away with, and instead the Buyids made sure to appoint loyal commanders of the slave army, ideally Shia Turkish slave generals. But the Buyid emirate also came to be far more decentralized than the other emirates. It was in essence a federation of three emirates, one controlling Iraq led from Baghdad, one controlling southwestern Iran led from Shiraz, and one controlling northwestern Iran led from Rey, which today is basically a suburb of Tehran. These three mini-emirates essentially operated independently, with various emirs sometimes claiming to be the overlords of the other two. And by the time of the Seljuk conquest of Nishapur, all three mini-emirates were basically on the decline. The three emirates quarreled with each other, and in Iraq in particular, the three-way relationship between the Buyid emir, the Turkish slave troops, and the Abbasid dynasty was becoming increasingly tense, and rebellions were common. On the fringes of the three mini-emirates, local houses of Kurdish, Iranian, or Arab extraction came to effectively rule mini-statelets. So as Tuhrul gazed westwards from Nishapur, he saw a land ruled by weak emirs and petty warlords, in conflict with each other, facing down revolts and disorder, and professing a form of Islam that was both not shared by the majority of the population and not supported by the caliph. A form of Islam that indeed denied the caliph's legitimacy. And Tuhrul realized what a great opportunity this was. Not only could he present himself as the restorer of order, he could also present himself as the restorer of Sunni orthodoxy, the savior of Iran from rebellion and from heresy. And like we said earlier, these two things could be presented as the two sides of the same coin, as essentially the same thing. Why is there disorder? Because Iran is ruled by heretics. And the Seljuks are the solution to both problems. And so in 1041, Tuhrul began his conquest of Iran. It began fairly opportunistically. In Tabaristan and Jurjan, that is the area of Iran bordering Khorasan in the very north of Iran along the Caspian Sea, a local dynasty of Iranian extraction subject to the Buyids was engaged in a vicious round of squabbling, as was typical of the Buyids and their vassals at this time. According to Ibn al-Atir, Tuhrul Bey realized that in those lands there was no one capable of defending them against him, so he marched there to Jurjan. Tuhrul quickly put the main city of the region to siege, and the local commander quickly realized that he could not withstand the Turks, so he opened the city up to Tuhrul. Tuhrul then handed the city over to a local Iranian lord, imposing a payment of 100,000 dinars on the city and an obligation of a 50,000 dinar annual tribute. The lands of far northern Iran were now his vassals, and he ordered that the khutbah be read in his name. He then turned around and went home to Nishapur. This sort of set the template for Tuhrul's initial Iranian conquests. He would in essence offer to use his powerful Turkish troops to help a feuding Iranian lord win whatever fight he was in. He would negotiate with these local lords and come to a deal that left them in power, so long as they acknowledged his sovereignty and paid him tribute. 
but he would also demand the pasturage for his Ohu's followers, and he would make sure to distribute a portion of the tribute payments to them. In this way, he would fulfill his obligations as a steppe nomad warlord, as a Khan, to provide pasturage and loot to his followers. But this was actually harder than it sounds. For one thing, modern historians believe that the climatic shifts were making Central Asia and Iran colder and drier at this time, making formerly good pasture land less viable, and making formerly arable farmland suitable for pasturage. This of course caused conflict with the farmers that the Ohu's nomads encountered. Additionally, though we can't be sure, it seems that the number of Ohu's nomads subject to the Seljuks had greatly increased. Further Ohu's, fleeing the chaos of the steppe worlds and the effects of climate change drying out and cooling down the steppe, had come from the remnants of the dying Ohu's Yabgu state to the south, to join their brothers and cousins already serving the House of Seljuk. The written sources do indicate that this caused immense pressure on the Ohu's to expand further. An Iranian Suriani Christian named Bar Hebraeus records the following about the Ohus. In every place where his troops meet together, they plunder and destroy and kill, and no one district or quarter is able to support them for more than one week because of their vast numbers. And from sheer necessity, they are compelled to depart to another quarter in order to find food for themselves and their beasts. And so in 1042 and 1043, Driven by this need to make sure that his Ohu's followers had adequate pasturage, Tuhro pushed further into Iran. Fortunately, the area between the cities of Rey near modern Tehran and the more southwestern city of Hamadan had basically the best pasturage in central Iran. And this was right on the doorstep of the lands in northern Iran that Tuhro had just conquered. Taking both cities and controlling this area was therefore a top priority for the Seljuks. Under Tukhro's cousin and foster brother, a son of Musa Yabgu and one of his top lieutenants, a man named Ibrahim Yanal, a Seljuk horde rode south from newly conquered Tabaristan and towards the city of Rey, which was the capital of one of the three mini-emirates that made up the tottering Buyid Emirate. Rey was quickly taken and the local Buyid prince expelled, whereupon Ibrahim Yanal moved southwest towards Hamadan. Upon hearing of the advance of the Seljuks, the local ruler of Hamadan fled to the nearest town that had a good citadel, and Ibrahim Yanal and the Seljuks essentially forced the local people of Hamadan to pay them off and accept Seljuk dominion. They then went off to besiege the citadel that that local lord had fled to, and the guy just didn't have the troops to hold out. As Ibn al-Athir writes, As they did not have sufficient strength to resist, the town fell to an assault and the Ohus plundered the populace and perpetrated some atrocities. Just some atrocities, you know how it goes sometimes. Tukhrul now held all of northern and central Iran in addition to western Khorasan, and it seems that it is around this time that Tukhrul began to use the title Sultan, a much higher rank than Emir. Though traditionally a prerogative of the caliph, Mahmud of Ghazna had taken the title for himself, and the fact that Tuhro was now starting to use this title shows just how powerful he had become, both as a lord of Iran and within the internal Seljuk leadership. In fact, it is from this point that the duopoly between Tuhro and Shahri appears to begin breaking down, as Tuhro began to emerge as the paramount leader. He alone, and not his brother Chahri, could be a sultan. 
Unlike later conquests, following the conquest of northern Iran, the local lords in Hamadan and Rai were actually removed, and Turul himself moved into Rai, turning it into essentially his capital. After conquering central Iran, Turul then gave the city of Hamadan to Ibrahim Yanal as his reward, which, as we will come to see, would begin a fatal rift between the two men. The valuable pasturage between Rey and Hamadan was now in the hands of the first Seljuk Sultan. But it turns out that there were actually already some Okus Turks in the region. If you remember back to the last episode, after Mahmud of Ghazna had defeated the Seljuks in 1029, a portion of the Okus subject to the Seljuks had broken away and had fled west. Termed the Irakia because they had plundered Iraq, they basically had been on a rampage through what's now Iran, Iraq, southeastern Turkey, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. They had left behind them a trail of devastation as they had rampaged around the caliphate. And a portion of them had settled for a time here, in these amazing pasture lands of central Iran. This was sort of a problem for Tuhrul. For one thing, these Ohus were in essence rebels. They had not stayed loyal to the House of Seljuk after the initial defeats at the hands of the Ghaznavids. But that was more or less forgivable. I mean, who would have thought that the Seljuks would have come this far from that defeat? And in any event, they could solve this now by submitting to Tuhrul and pledging loyalty, which their leaders seemed more than happy to do. I mean, why not follow the guy who's winning here? The bigger problem was that they were throwing a wrench into Tuchel's bigger political project. These were yet more wild Ohus nomads. And while Tuchel was happy to have them on board in his capacity as Khan, they were making life incredibly difficult for him in his capacity as Sultan. How could he portray himself to the settled elites of Iran as the restorer of order, the defender of Sunni orthodoxy? when he was taking the side of his cousins who had just spent a decade causing mass destruction and destabilizing the whole caliphate. In order to solve this problem, Tuchel, in his capacity as sultan, basically told the Persian elites, hey, these guys aren't really with me, and don't worry, I'm dealing with them. I'm the restorer of order. You can trust me. Don't worry. I'm not going to let them rampage around Iran. According to Ibn al-Athir, he said, these Turkmen were our slaves, servants, subjects, and followers. They were obedient and served our court. And when we arose to arrange the affairs of the Ghaznavid house and we were charged with dealing with them in Khwarezm, they headed off to Rey, where they created havoc and destruction. We mustered our armies from Khorasan against them, determined that they should seek mercy and take refuge in forgiveness. Pride took possession of them, and decency deserted them and we must return them humble to our banners and give them a taste of our harshness as a reward for rebels. And to the Irakia and the wilder of his own Ohus nomads, in his capacity as a Khan, Tuchel basically said, Look, I'm happy to have you guys on board. I love you, you're very, very special, but you can't stay here in Iran. You're causing too much trouble already and you're making me look bad. Why don't you go off to Azerbaijan, which I hear has amazing pasturage, or better yet, Anatolia, which not only has great pasturage, but is also ruled by infidels. Essentially, the emerging tension and conflict between the Ohus nomads and the settled peoples, including in time the settled Seljuk court, meant that the Seljuks needed to find a release valve of a sort for their nomadic followers. 
we can think about this as a tension between Tukrul's twin roles, his role as Sultan and his role as Khan. He needed the nomads. He couldn't conquer without them. The nomads were the source of all of his power. But he also couldn't just have the nomads rampaging around and bothering the settled elites, who he also needed in order to run an actual empire, to become an actual sultan. And this tension is going to run right through Seljuk history, especially as the Seljuk court, over time, becomes more and more cooked, as the Chinese would say. Tuchel's solution to his immediate problem of what to do with these wild Turkmen tribes was, in essence, let's just send the nomads off to raid and settle in new lands, ideally new lands full of infidels. Let's find some place where it doesn't matter that they're just going to rampage around. Then the Seljuks could come in, sweep up after them, and in the wake of the destruction that they caused, be the restorers of order. And this had another great benefit. If you're going to be attacking Byzantium, that also makes you the prosecutor of the jihad, a ghazi, which is a great way to legitimize yourself and promote yourself as a defender of Sunni orthodoxy. Reportedly, Ibrahim Yanal told some of the nomads after the conquest of Rey and Hamadan in 1040, My territories are too small for you and to support your needs. The best thing to do is go to attack Anatolia, fight in God's path, plunder, and I will come in your wake and assist you. So now we're going to close out the episode by discussing the very beginning of the Turkish presence in Anatolia, the land that would come to be the homeland of the Turks. Essentially, as Tuhrul conquered central Iran, Oku's nomads began to push steadily westwards, into Azerbaijan and Anatolia, nudged along by Tuhrul in the nascent Seljuk court and compelled by their needs for pasturage. Now, the very first Turkish raids into Azerbaijan and Armenia had actually begun even before Tuhrul and the Seljuk court had arrived in central Iran, and the first appearance of the Irakia Oku's in Azerbaijan and the Armenian highlands appears to have occurred in 1036. But these were short-lived, and the bulk of the Irakia then returned to central Iran. So it was really here, in the early 1040s, that Turkish raiding into Anatolia began in force. The first major invasions by the Turks into the land that they would be destined to dominate. Oku's nomads now began raiding deep into what is now southeastern Turkey and northern Iraq and Syria, raiding around Mosul, Mardin, Diyarbakir, and Batman. The Ohus also raided into the territories of the Armenian kingdoms of Vesporikan, located around Lake Van in modern-day Turkey, and Ani, located along the border of Turkey and Armenia today, as well as deep into Georgia and throughout Azerbaijan. These lands were perfect for the Ohus, as they contained both cities that they could loot and wide-open grasslands to graze their herds. And this raiding, inevitably, brought the Ohus into conflict with the Roman Empire. Now we're going to discuss the political situation in eastern Anatolia in more detail in coming episodes, but for now, it is important to understand that these regions were only recently brought back into the Roman Empire. When the Abbasid Caliphate splintered into a patchwork of emirates following the anarchy at Samarra, a large number of small emirates arose on the Byzantine borderlands. At the same time, the Armenian and Georgian principalities broke away from the Caliphate, leading to a disorganized region dominated by small statelets. As the relentless Muslim raids into Anatolia ceased, and as the locus of jihad shifted to Central Asia and the Samanid jihad against the Turks, 
the Byzantine Empire under the Macedonian dynasty retrenched and expanded again and came to dominate these small statelets. At the same time, Georgia consolidated into the medieval kingdom of Georgia under the Bagratid dynasty, frequently at odds with the Roman Empire. Eventually, just as the Ohus raids were beginning, the Roman Empire came to reincorporate the Armenian principalities in the region completely into the empire, with the Armenian princes trading their sovereignty for pensions and offices in the empire itself, and Roman garrisons installed in their place. Turkish raiding really seems to then escalate around 1045, coincidentally, the same year that the Byzantine Empire completed its consolidation of power in Armenia and directly took over its former vassals in Ani and Vosporakan. No doubt in order to help the Byzantines celebrate their new success in Armenia, in 1045 the Ohus carried out a devastating raid through Vosporakan. Massive hordes began moving into the region, particularly into Azerbaijan, urged along by Tukhrul and Tukhrul decided that raiding Anatolia was not just a good release valve for his Turkmen followers, but a good release valve for his own family. In 1046, Tukhrul dispatched a great raiding party to eastern Anatolia and Azerbaijan, and put it under the command of his cousin Kutalmish. If you'll recall from last episode, Kutalmish was the son of Arslan Israel, the first successor to Seljuk who had lost to Mahmud of Ghazna. Kutalmush then followed up his father's record of losing by losing out to Musa Yabgu, Tuhrul, and Shahri in the initial power struggle to succeed his father. He had been unhappily sitting around in the background while his uncle and cousins led the Seljuks to great, almost unbelievable victories, and Tuhrul decided that it would maybe be for the best if something could be found for this resentful Seljuk prince, before he did something stupid. So Kutalmish was selected to lead this great raid into Byzantine territory, sacking the Byzantine garrison at Ganja in modern-day Azerbaijan, and raiding throughout what is now Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, and eastern Anatolia. But not all raids were so successful. In 1046 or 1047, it's hard to tell based on the sources, a Seljuk prince named Hassan, another one of Tukhrul's nephews who Tukhrul had packed off to the west, led a great raid into Georgia. As he returned, laden with plunder back to Azerbaijan through eastern Anatolia, he passed through Vasporakan. Coincidentally, the emperor, Constantine Monomachos, was currently putting down a rebellion in Thrace, and so most of the Byzantine troops in Armenia had been withdrawn to Europe. Despite being severely outnumbered by the Seljuk forces, two Roman generals laid a clever trap for Hassan near Lake Van in Vasporakan. They built a great encampment, stocked it with goods, and then hid in the nearby hills. When Hassan and his troops predictably started looting the camp, the Byzantine forces emerged, descended on the disorganized Turkish army, and crushed it. Hassan and his men were driven away empty-handed. According to Byzantine sources, it was in response to this defeat of Hassan that Tuchrul assembled another great army of Turkmen nomads to directly attack the Byzantine armies in eastern Anatolia in 1048. But while this may have played a role, the reality is that Tuchrul was using the raids of Anatolia as a release valve both for his annoying relatives and the Turkmen tribes he needed to get out of the lands of Iran as he was consolidating his rule. And so it likely would have just happened anyway. And in any event, the Ohus themselves had heard of the great riches conquered in the west before Hassan's defeat, and were eager to return. We should never forget 
that Tukrul's control over the Turkmen tribes was actually somewhat limited. He could urge them and steer them. He had great influence, but he couldn't really stop them from doing what the tribes always did, namely plunder and raid. And if they were determined to go on a large raid, it would be better for him to at least send a general to assert his authority, impose at least some order, and tie the tribes to him. Very much, there go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. And so a great army of Turkmen tribes was assembled in Tabriz and put under the command of Ibrahim Yanal and Kutalmush together. According to Byzantine sources, the Seljuk forces numbered 100,000 strong, but that's clearly an exaggeration. The Seljuk army moved out of Tabriz towards Vasporakan and the Byzantine borders. According to the Byzantine historian John Skylitsis, Hassan, who the Sultan had sent against the Romans, passed through Tabriz and to the place called Tiflis, that is Tbilisi today, and came to Vasporakan. He destroyed and burnt everything, slaughtering everybody he encountered, not even sparing those of tender age. Now Skylitsis seems to have gotten the commanders wrong, but the pillage seems about right. As the Seljuks ravaged Byzantine territory, yet again the Byzantine troops were severely outnumbered. The ongoing unrest in Europe meant that the East was denuded of troops. Emperor Constantine Monomachos desperately called for his ally in Georgia, the Duke Liparit, to come to his aid. The Byzantine forces knew that they could not withstand the might of the Seljuks, so they retreated into the fortresses and castles of the region. As the Seljuks ravaged the countryside of eastern Anatolia, going so far as Erzurum, Liparit assembled his armies in Georgia and began marching south. With the Byzantines holed up in their fortresses, the Seljuk army was able to sack the city of Artse near Erzurum. This was the most important market town in eastern Anatolia, full of Armenian, Greek, and Arab merchants, and the Turkmen raiders were able to carry off virtually all of its immense wealth. As the Seljuk army left Artse laden with plunder, Liparit and his Georgian troops finally showed up. Now that the reinforcements had arrived, the Byzantines felt that they could take the field. And so on September 18th, 1048, the Byzantine army met the Seljuks near the city of Kapetron, today's Hassan Kale, on the plains outside Erzurum. The center was commanded by Liparit, with Byzantine commanders on the wings. The result was probably a foregone conclusion, basically what always happens when steppe armies meet settled armies on the field. The Byzantine-Georgian army was defeated, and Liparit himself was captured. According to John Skylitsis, Kekalmenos and Aran, the two Byzantine commanders, routed their opposing wings and pushed them until cockcrow, but Liparit, desolate of the loss of his nephew, charged at full tilt when his horse was wounded and was captured. In essence, the Byzantine sources try to dress this up as a draw and say that they held the field at the end and were just about to win this thing before the Turks managed to pull out a victory. But this sounds suspiciously like the multitude of accounts of settled peoples falling for the step tactic of the feigned retreat. In essence, the authors say, We had the nomads on the run, and we were going to win up until an unfortunate event occurred. But of course, they were actually just running into the ambush. Regardless, the result is not in question. According to both Byzantine and Islamic sources, the commander Liparit was captured and the Seljuks were able to return to Azerbaijan laden with plunder. The Battle of Kepetron, the first major battle between the Byzantines and the Turks, ended in a decisive Turkish victory. 
unfortunately for the Roman Empire, it would not be the last such confrontation. After the victory at Capetron, Ibrahim Yanal continued raiding west, while Kutalmish conquered another fortress on the way back to Azerbaijan for good measure. Ibn al-Atir, for his part, reports, Yanal continued raiding and plundering those lands until he came within 15 days of Constantinople. The Muslims dominated those regions, which they ravaged and plundered. They took more than 100,000 persons captive and seized more horses, mules, booty, and cash than could possibly be counted. It has been said that 10,000 carts carried the spoils and that 19,000 coats of mail were part of the booty. Following the Battle of Capetron, Emperor Constantine Monomachos decided to make peace with Tukhro, which Tukhrul agreed to. Liparit was sent back to Constantinople, and Tukhrul agreed to refrain from raiding Anatolia. Additionally, and importantly for Tukhrul's project of legitimation, the emperor agreed that the Friday Khutbah in the Mosque of Constantinople would be read in the name of Tukhrul and the Abbasid Caliph, not the Shia Fatimid Caliph in Egypt, and that the Seljuk sigil of the bow and the arrow would be fixed to the mihrab. This recognition by a foreign leader, especially the Roman emperor, enhanced Tukhrul's reputation, and getting the emperor of the Romans to in essence recognize both Tukhrul and the Sunni Abbasid caliph enhanced Tukhrul's standing as the defender of Sunni orthodoxy and as a legitimate sultan. But Tukhrul's promise of stopping raids of Anatolia was actually quite hollow. As we will see, he wasn't able to really control the tribes anyway and as Turkish raids continued, he would simply protest to the emperor that those weren't really his Turkmen, all the while actually continuing to encourage it. The Seljuk prince Kutalmish stayed in the Byzantine borderlands, representing Tukhrul and leading the tribes in raiding, and it would be Kutalmish's son who would come to establish the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, the first Turkish state in what is now the homeland of the Turks. But for now, Tukhrul is on the road to total power, the ruler of all of Iran and Khorasan, and the man recognized as Sultan by the Emperor of the Romans. And next time, we will discuss how Tukhrul would not only come to definitively win the internal struggle for power within the Seljuk Empire, but how he would come to expand the power of the House of Seljuk even further. How he would come to be, in a sense, the sole legitimate Sunni ruler in the entirety of the lands of Islam.